Well, hello there. This is Brian Melanson, and you've tuned into this episode of the Altitude Sessions podcast, coming to you from our studio here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Let's be honest, the corporate strategy setting process, particularly in healthcare, it kind of sucks. I think most of you'd nod your head on that. We're going to talk a little bit about that and maybe ways to get a little bit more out of that process in this episode. And we're also going to jump into the strategy to get away from all of us in private exchanges. Let's get into it. You know, by very definition, a bad strategy that I guarantee many of you listening to this will nod your head and go, yeah, we do that. It's a, it's a strategy that's put in play in such a way that it accommodates a multitude of different demands, many of which of these demands probably are in conflict with one another. And you do it without consideration to making any, or if you do a few, trade-offs. It's a bad strategy. I've sat through a lot of these discussions where everyone wants to talk about what's wrong. Everybody wants to talk about what opportunities might be in front of us. Very few people want to talk about the uneven resource allocation that comes with perhaps pursuing one of these new opportunities or the uneven resource allocation that should be occurring if a strategy itself has a higher probability of winning or maybe has higher upside of winning, not necessarily probability, but higher upside of winning and is worthy of a bet. And that may come at the expense of some of the other the other things that the organization's craving or wants or needs that may not be as high yield, that may may not get the organization where it needs. I just came off a, a series of discussions over the last couple of weeks with top health executive teams, and more often than not, whether it's done at a divisional level, whether it's done at a board level, whether you know wherever it may be, there's this kind of even coding approach, which I think has something to do with the financial approach and everything else that goes on in the budgeting cycles of these companies and other things, but let's just kind of baseline budget let's let's just let's just smooth over our resources over everybody on the team or everybody in the division everybody you know the the core execs in the company and it creates this very wide very thin view of the allocation of resources inside that organization and that's a little bit of a teaser we're going to talk a little bit more about why that can't happen and what separates great companies from the organizations that that do more of this and, and perhaps are middling in the middle of the pack and in, in, in the industry and perhaps even broader when you take a view of that they might be on the lower end of the overall performance of performing companies when you look at the strategies of, of a lot of these you know top 13 14 1500 companies in the country so I think that that's a little bit of a teaser and appetite in talking through strategy in how I bet a lot of you would say the process that we're in today, it's a lot of inside baseball. It's a lot of insiders' views. It's a lot of teams playing the political game to maximize resources or maximize their chances of not having resource loss. And it ends up being this clusterfuck of a strategy in its own right, I guess, that 
keeps you in the middle of the pack, middling, not going anywhere. Not making the hard decisions that can be made. Because, again, there's resources spread across all these conflicting interests. And just say multiple bets instead of taking the couple where the empirical research has been done to say these are the two we're taking. Speaking of strategies, it's been really interesting in the political sphere lately to watch all the stuff come out. You know, we've, we've talked over the last few months about just what's going on in the presidential primaries. And just a, a few days ago, the you know, at, at AHIP, which is the large industry conference for health insurance plans that was in Nashville, you had a keynote speech from the CEO of Cigna, David Carnani, and in that speech, you know, the one of the tenets that, that a lot of the press picked up on and has been reported on ad nauseum since has been the statement that, which you can get from an industry perspective, but the statement that we should press pause on the Medicare for all debate. Now, those of you who have been listening for a while, you know I'm not a Medicare for all advocate. That's not my thing. I actually believe in markets and the ability for capital to be ingested into companies to create you know, heightened deficiencies and increase R&D spend so that we can do wonderful things with that capital. I, I believe in all of that. But the one benefit you have of being the the armchair quarterback sitting behind this microphone is that when you hear statements like that come out of a large health insurer gathering, it makes me slap my forehead and it's kind of one of those what the fuck moments. I know the reasons and the rationale behind it. I know the teams that probably, you know, went through all the permutations of how to how to position that. When you've got a business that has a pretty large tether in the employer marketplace, working with, with middle and larger employers in this country, and when you've got a business that's working pretty well in Medicare and you've got things that are going well in Medicaid, I, I understand why you'd say that. And perhaps maybe the the tenor of it is, is just let's have some civil – debate on this and then I understand that too what I don't get is the is the if you look at a lot of the polling stuff the number one priority coming out of the midterm and the number one priority going into the presidential election year particularly amongst democratic voters which are pretty fired up right now it's health care just dare too old, you know. There's Kaiser metrics that have come out where they did a survey of, of among Democratic voters, and you know, on that survey, 87% of people said that healthcare has to be talked about in the Democratic primary. Has to be talked about. And if you're a Democratic front runner, you're not fucking pressing pause on the Medicare debate or the Medicare for all debate. No way. In the middle of the line, you can say, God, this country is really divided. And it is. It's really divided on the Republican side. 
the Democratic side and what these views are. And even within that survey, there's quite a few things that were pretty telling that even the definition of Medicare for all, which has always been the 100,000 foot argument, nobody can even agree on what that means. And I'm sure that in the the posturing of the how to make that bullet point sing in that address was, you know, if Republicans are in the mid 40s somewhere, Democrats overall mid 40s, and they're you know re- Republicans from mid 40s in their opposition to Medicare for all, Democrats somewhere in the mid 40s in their opposition to or in their favor for I'll get this right in a minute in their favor for Medicare for all and. Independents are just about as evenly split. Depending on the poll you look at, some sometimes low 40s, sometimes upper 40s, but it's, it's there. It's somewhere in there. It's pretty damn divided. So that may give you the idea of saying, hey, we can go out and have this conversation and say, hey, let's just press pause on it. We're not pressing pause on this discussion. The debate's going to continue to roar, and it's going to be front and center in presidential politics. Because we've reached these this discussion point where, you know, further in that Kaiser sur- sur- survey, most important priorities that politicians in D.C. should be looking at right now, number one, this is a tie, reducing out-of-pocket cost and reducing my premium and deductibles. I mean, that's what people are probably going to say no matter what survey, no matter what time we are, whether we're in the populism ebb and flow, wherever we are in that cycle, Sure. I want you always working for me to lower my my cost in this system, but I still want the best high-quality benefits you can give me. But on the quality front, quality was number five on that survey. I want D.C. politicians focused on improving quality. No, that was five. You know, the tie for one was reducing out-of-pocket costs, reducing premium and deductibles. There's been a lot more discussion lately even in, in our meetings and our, our consulting sessions and other things about are we reaching some price tipping point? Is that coming soon? Is it is it a year from now? Is it five years from now? Is it 10 years from now? 15 years from now? But is, is that moment coming? And I don't think you have to look very hard to look at all the solutions that have gone on in the, the individual market and all the solutions that are going on in the solving for the small group market. So many people that don't buy commercial insurance anymore because it's so expensive to say, yeah. I mean, I would say that you could argue that that tipping point's already come for half of people that are eligible for that stuff, if not more, just looking at the metrics and thinking through all that. So you're accommodating an ever-shrinking market. You're accommodating an ever-bifurcating market between large employers, haves and have-nots in the system that we have today. And that is why this populism that's growing isn't going to take a break. It's not going to press pause on this issue. And I think when you dig even further in some of those comments, it's like, hey, we have to change. I all due respect to all of my friends and colleagues in this industry, that that's akin to saying we're standing in the middle of the forest and several decades ago we started to see a little smoldering off in the distance And as the decades have gone on, we've gone, shit, it's getting a little hotter standing in the forest. And then finally, we've just decided to wake up and look around and go, holy shit, the forest is on fire? 
and now what we we've got to change. We gotta we gotta do something different. We're we're gonna become firefighters. I would say that to the folks that are in the populism side, when they hear comments like that, and they're pushing for Medicare for all, they're saying, "Wasn't that supposed to be what you were doing from year one? Weren't you supposed to be going and putting out the fire that was smoldering that you saw decades ago, or finding a way to manage it so that it didn't get to this?" full blaze it's engulfing a lot of people so I, I find that it's fascinating and you know even you know on the other side with all the surprise billing legislation that's going on right now I think that's funny too and then then you've got the, the you know the the American Hospital Association and, and folks like Tom Nichols that are, that are that are out there advocating on behalf of the AHA sitting in the Senate Health Committee and talking to Senators Alexander and Murray that are that are co-sponsoring this legislation that they're trying to, this bill that they're trying to get through and saying, you know, we don't want government meddling in the negotiation that's pretty obtuse behind, behind the curtain between a hospital and a insurer for out-of-network surprise medical bills. We want that to be arbitrated in some some process that, still in some far-off land, they might be convincing themselves as transparent, but it isn't. And the people are still on the hook. It's either the insurer carrying the risk or it's the employer carrying the risk, paying claims. They're still ultimately going to be the ones responsible for whatever the hell that magic number is that, that's achieved. And you know the pushback there has been against some kind of a regional benchmark policy that says, let's just benchmark it to a statistic and kind of go from there and you know you've had folks that even testified in that 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 committee hearing that that said hey I, let's just do this at 125 percent of medicare and call it good and that's even much more aggressive than this regional benchmark policy you know in some ways uh, coming out saying gosh we still need free markets which i understand and you know you i've already told you my position on this we need free markets and we don't want the government to get in get in the middle of what we're trying to negotiate with insurers, that's between us and them. That's not a free market either. The free market that everybody's been asking for for the longest time that this industry, you know, struggles to get behind, and there's I understand why, because of business processes and competitive practices and, and everything else, has been put your prices out there and let the free market respond to whether your price and quality metrics add up compared to other options within the region. And, you know, I mean, having a, a set of physicians roaming the halls of a hospital that are out of network that can charge whatever they want or having an air ambulance, which I've had a friend recently get caught up in that, bill, you know, $27,000, $37,000 for a trip over the mountains for a minor issue that needed to be treated at a different hospital because those things have largely gone unchecked with, with regulation for the longest time because of the Airline Deregulation Act and other things. You know, these things that are being put forth right now in in Congress in some degree, they're they're trying to get at some some common sense problems to complex issues that have been gone that have gone unchecked for the longest time. And I understand the hospitals are the hospital association's argument too around 
free market stuff, but also around will insurers be incented to have fair bargaining and contracting going forward? But you could turn that as around just as equally if it's some mathematical formula, which none of us really know how that would work at this point. But if it's some mathematical formula on what a regional benchmark for that particular service is, you could say just as evenly that, that, that physicians in the future can negotiate in such a way to drive that regional benchmark rate back up. So, you know, there, there's so much there that's just interesting and just, just some of the public pushing on some of this. You know, I just wonder sometimes if you say, I understand why you're pushing against some fixed percentage and it's a slippery slope potentially to single pricing, which could lead to single payer and, and other things. But there are inevitabilities at some point that in rural America, that in metropolitan America, both, there are tipping points in price that say that at some point, the costs for these services are untenable. And something has to be done to break the cycle, create a new cycle of innovation, because if you set these benchmark prices, it's something, I guarantee you, at some percentage, I guarantee you there'll be some entrepreneur that goes out there and will figures, figures out a way to deliver that service maybe much more efficiently and effectively than it is today. And it's the same reason we have mileage uh, regulations on how, much, how many miles per gallon a car or truck should get. Because it forces automakers to go back and say, how do I still give this engine all the heft that it needs, but it does it more efficiently? There is some balance between free market principles and, and common sense regulation. And, you know, too far free market, yeah, you can run into trouble. And too far over-regulated, you run into trouble there because it stifles innovation. It's, it's always finding that, that sweet spot, that balance. It's so damn hard. So strategies, you know, getting into this, this discussions around strategy, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've almost looked at the back of my eyelids during strategy meetings, even going through my career over the, over the you know, the, the couple of decades I've been doing this. And, and it's just, there's a seven-step process and an offside is not all of a sudden going to make your company a leader in anything. It isn't. You know, the insider view, no matter where it is, whether it's, inside your boardroom or it's in some place like Sun Valley, Idaho or whatever, it's, that's not going to matter. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting stuff that may come out of it. And sometimes you find interesting political things that are, that are happening inside the organization. But, you know, what often happens at a lot of those meetings is people come out of it feeling good, like you're going to take over in the world. But just saying that you're going to be the best at something doesn't make it so. Because within that, just saying we're going to be good at something, then, then Druckers and all these other people over the years have come out and said, hey, the strategy room discussion is interesting, but where it all gets interesting is then figuring out what to do versus what not to do. And these planning sessions and the process themselves and the culture that you permeate throughout your organization has to bring new ways of thinking about the issues and opportunities that your organization's facing. And that's not always how close can we get to our customer? Because there are times when there are just trends that are going to be changing in your industry that will make any strategy that your your bottom-up even feeder type things are, are, are doing make them seem irrelevant. And and that's that's the the thing that's interesting to me. There just you know there there are things that that just happen industry trend-wise and others that you've got to keep your your tethers into. Because sometimes the best strategy is knowing when to cut bait on a strategy. So I, I, I know that the bottom-up 
in the top down, there's lots of arguments in the strategy circles on all of that and what's right and what's wrong. And too much top down is bad. You know, not enough bottom up is bad. <laughs> you know, so there's, it seems like a lot of the literature these days features bottom up strategy making. And I'm not against that because when you're in a highly competitive, hot industry where the trends are all running great and it's all about competing and finding levels of differentiation, the people that are closest to the customer are the people that you want to be listening to inside your company. But the other part of the responsibilities that you can't you can't put aside is that as a senior executive that's supposed to have a periscope seeing all the trends coming at you and all the, the headwinds that may be happening or figuring out how to ride the tailwind, tailwinds that are behind you, you've got to be managing that. You know, you're flying the plane and figuring out navigation left, right, center. And it all gets down to what drives most people crazy that are in the strategy discipline. Strategy, in my opinion, the whole planning process around it, we try to bring all this science to it. There's still a lot of it. There's a hell of a lot of it's an art. It's an art. It just is. Because it is this coordinated it's this coordinated approach of deep thinking and balancing inside and outside viewpoints on what's going on having a better way of benchmarking your company against your competition so that you don't have things like automatic halo effects where you end up patting yourself on the back for such a wonderful strategy because you made some line of business that was unprofitable profitable without recognizing all your other competitors, same thing happened with them. The market kind of lifted all boats. The only way you can really determine if your strategy was a hell of a lot better than everybody else's is did how did you do as a delta to the performance of the overall industry? The overall industry had a halo effect and it was lifted by 3% margin improvement and you were at two. You can still pat yourself on the back, back that you improved margin but honestly, who gives a fuck? Because the, the reality is you're you're one point below the industry average. It's the people that that found ways to do it at eight or nine percent when their competitors were at three. That's that's the stuff that you know starts to go, hmm, what are they doing? What are they doing differently? And how are they how are they standing out? So if you're coming to our group here in Atlanta here in a couple weeks in uh, July, July uh, 15 to 17, Atlanta, Buckhead, to talk product and distribution, which is going to be a great group. I mean, just, we did this one last year. We're doing it this year. I know you hear this crap all the time from other people, but it's 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 going to be something. And a lot of new uh, new faces in the community that are going to be part of it, just, just given the topic matter and stuff. It's just really good. But if you're coming to that, we've actually – got a book for you that's gonna be part of the giveaway so when i give you the title don't buy it because it's coming um it'll be part of the stuff the strategy package of stuff that you're getting but there's a book that's out there it's called strategy beyond the hockey stick it's relatively new it is a mckenzie book it's got all the mckenzie corporate metric stuff in it that many of you use to help with some of the strategic planning in your business day in and day out anyway so we thought it'd be a good one to to bring to you and you know, the folks, the authors of the book, they they looked at a, a number of performing companies, and I would say it's 1,500 or so companies, and they they, they started to look at what it, what accelerates or moves companies from being kind of in the, the broad average versus being exceptional or being true laggards. 
and this isn't just in the market. This is across all industries that they looked at and everything else. And you know, what was interesting is that they found that the the broad average of companies, it's a very, very long, long line on a chart. The exceptional companies, it is a very short, <laughs> very steep line. And the laggard company is kind of the same. And, and the companies that are exceptional, the margin capture that they're creating, the market value that they're creating because of that margin, or it's representative of the margin that they're getting in their business, those numbers are getting steeper and bigger. So it means that the, the acceleration of that, the steepness of that line is continuing to, to take hold. And in, in this, this discussion of this book, what they found is that over a 10-year period of companies that were in this broad middle, only 8% moved from the middle three quintiles to the top over that 10-year period. 8%. Less than 1 in 10 had the types of strategies and moves and had the, the opportunistic timing of being in an industry where they had a little bit of a tailwind. It actually allowed them to move into that top-performing peer group. 14% in the bottom, and then 78% just stayed put, kind of in the middle. And that's what I think of as all these strategy sessions, why they just feel like a, you know, an eye roll session is part of the, you know, time of the year where, where it's like, oh, it's time to do the strategy. A lot of executives have been in these companies and been in roles for a long time. They're like, hey, we do all this shit, and we always stay in the middle. So what difference does it make? I, I find just stuff like that to be to be fascinating, you know, as, as we as we think through some of this stuff and what it takes to really move up and everything else. And, you know, the the they, they did a pretty comprehensive model in this book and the, the model what it what it bears out is that there is something that just comes with being in the right industry at the right time. And that helps market movement and helps lift all boats or it helps sink boats if, if the headwinds are get really strong and it's moving against you. And, you know, think about the the companies that had headwinds when things went from cassettes and CDs, cassettes to CDs, CDs to digital. And if you miss that stuff and you couldn't make the leap or the jump in your, your strategy and your planning because you missed that trend, that trend coming at you that's going to dwarf the current revenue models that are building your business today, you move down. Or you might have moved off the chart altogether because you're Circuit City. So there are there are things that that are just environmentally related, but there are things around, you know, market moves that dictate a decent chunk of whether you can move up or down in this this model as well. And you know, some of that's based on M&A and how, how you do M&A, and it's typically not bet the business M&A. It's more small, smaller, smallish, more frequent accretive capability additions that come into your business that typically don't, don't dwarf over 30% of the book value in, in any particular deal. And it's, it's being smart about that. If you're, you know, if you're an organization with HEF, the size of your organization helps influence some of this. And certainly if you're bigger, you've got more powder to deploy, and that allows you to, to make some decisions and to take some bets. 
financing, funding, all the things get a little bit easier the bigger you get. But it's not the end of the world if you're not big because there's other levers that you can pull. But And then the other is just differentiation improvement, and that's what I don't think these strategy rooms spend near enough time thinking about. What are the things that are going on in other parts of the industry, even other parts of just just the broader economy that should be considered that isn't put on the same consulting deck that's that's delivered to 45 different companies over and over and over again that needs to be thought through as a team that needs to be put in play that allows us to truly be different and how do we improve our operational efficiencies and others we're all part of that as well but it's just, it's just fascinating when you think about about that i mean you know, the story in the book was talked about Nokia and their executives. And Nokia was known for the longest time as being an incredibly intelligent organization, one that was incredibly innovative and brought, you know, all sorts of innovations to the to the cell phone industry and really helped help set that industry ablaze and move forward. And the folks inside that organization <laughs> actually had ideas very similar to what became of the iPhone three years sooner than... Steve Jobs, when he stood on the stage and said, hey, look at what we're bringing to the world, and aren't we great? But because of the organizational culture and the strategy processes and other things, those things got shot down because at some point in these organizations, based on trend and budgets and how things get allocated, that seemed like too big of a bet to take. It seemed like too big of a bet that might cannibalize the business that was doing exceptionally well that was right in front of the eyes of the people running those businesses. The insider view, the insider politics, the insider baseball, and a shitty strategy process finally caught up with them. And the more innovative folks that were seeing the trends and where the market was going next, they got dunked, pushed aside, and told no. That's why we do what we do. We want you to see some of the more collated trends that we think, in our opinion, are coming at you that are worthy of you considering and take advantage of all the time, effort, and energy that we put in play to to help bring those insights to you. You know, just to kind of tease some of this out as we look forward, you know, one of the uh, forthcoming podcasts on the schedule, we're going to talk about really the failures, if you want to call them as such, of the private exchange market. Because we all remember the statistics that people were talking about, market growth projections, and there there were some pretty significant misses there, and we want to do a deep dive into that for for you guys, and that's that's on its way, and I think that, you know, that really kind of follows on the heels of a lot of this discussion, just to talk about the, you know, strategy and strategy planning process, and how when you go back and you flash back into 2014, there was kind of this, this fever pitch, and there were all these meetings about, is this the it thing, and are we staying on trend, or are we falling behind? Is this going to change the face for how benefits, uh, whether it be in the commercial insurance markets for individual, whether it's going to be in the commercial insurance market for employers, whether it's going to be in the commercial insurance market for Medicare, I guess in that case just the Medicare market itself, was that going to be the it thing? And, man, I remember all the strategy discussions there, and like I said, I think there's a really good follow-on discussion that we've got on the schedule that, we need to spend a lot more time than just a few minutes on getting into. But, you know, here, let, let's, I mean, I, I just want to wrap it up here with, with regard to strategy. Look, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the strategic planning process is crap because it's not. It, it's, it's, a, it's an exercise that every company has to go through. 
and the really good companies are really good at it. And I think that's more of the point. The really good companies are good at finding the balance between internal and external information. They have executives that are good at seeing the big picture, and then they have really good cultures inside their organizations that help ideas closer to the customer funnel up, and then they have the ability to sort through all of that stuff to figure out how to set a direction and to figure out how to more unevenly and maybe even unfairly resource businesses where they, they believe that they're worth taking a risk or they believe that they are worth a little more money because the upside is going to be there versus those that might be dying on the vine or just kind of kind of standing still, you know, swimming in circles. But that's what those sessions should be all about. I mean, you know, just, just to kind of bring it back full circle, it, it is about understanding inside and outside views. It is about making trade-offs, some of which are hard, some of which may affect a colleague that you have a great relationship with, some of which may affect you. It is about thinking through are you taking enough risks? It's about thinking, do you have the types of people surrounding you that will help inform those decisions? Are they the right people? It's about bringing math into the into this stuff and doing empirical evidence-based decision-making, but at the same point, not just looking at just your industry, looking at overall trends, saying, how do we feel overall? Because sometimes, and I've even talked about it prior in this podcast, sometimes we think too much about our industry. One thing that I've learned as I work more and more with folks that are in the investor space and others is that they really don't care necessarily about a particular industry. They care about deploying their money where the the bets are, are, are have, have a good chance of doing something significant. And that that's not always just looking at an industry look. That's looking at the overall market to say we're the best places to, to deploy this money to where we have the best odds to to get the return that we seek on it. And that that's an interesting way of looking at it. Sometimes it doesn't even sit inside the, a lot of these these boardrooms and strategy discussions, just more what are we doing, what are our competitors doing, and they're 151-page slide decks, and usually on 151 there's some risks and contingency slide that you hope to God when you're presenting in front of the board you don't even get to. So it's it's things like that that I think are interesting, and, and it's just, I think, a good place to stop with regard to this session. But strategy, I, I guess I'll leave with one more point, and that is that the strategy process, even at times, may feel like you're stuck in the mud because you got all these headwinds and there's new regulations or there's something that's changing. And you just got to work your butt off to break even. And sometimes those years happen. And then there are years when you've got tailwinds or you've been smart and timing a move where you know it's time maybe to de-emphasize some of the things that you've been doing in the current industry and make a shift, maybe pivot more toward digital or more toward technology or more to whatever those things may be to where you can pick up some of the tailwinds coming from those sectors. And you time that in the right way that the company benefits over a period of several years. And, and that's, again, that's the art that comes with being a leader trying to navigate your way through all of this. So 
it's an exciting thing. It's something we love to do. We love to take team, teams through this this type of work. Uh, I, I hope that at this point we've become much better artists in these processes and look forward to having those conversations with you. But certainly, no matter what, we look forward to having you back here in a couple of weeks here on the next Altitude Sessions podcast. Like I said, we got some good stuff coming here on the roadmap. We are 12 episodes in. Thanks for supporting us. Talk soon.